You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. How are you? Great. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to draw your attention real quick back to an announcement that was made at the very beginning of service. Uh, One of those announcements, at least, that was made is that our Bible classes, registration for those are open right now, and that closes tomorrow. Uh, I am especially excited about the the study this semester because we're studying the book of Proverbs. Uh, God wrote a, a few books in his word about wisdom and how to live wisely. Proverbs is one of them, maybe the, the most well-known. And, and I think if there's ever a time that we need to grow in wisdom, it's now. And so if you uh, are considering uh, being a part of that or, or you're interested in being part of that, please go online and register. We have a men's class that meets Monday nights. Uh, we have two classes uh, of where the women meet either um, Tuesday morning or Tuesday evening. That closes tomorrow. So don't miss that. Um, what we're doing uh, this whole month is we're, gonna con- we're considering Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, and, and that's colliding with how at our church, at Citizens Church, uh, even back when we were part of the village, every January we spend time talking about issues that are near to the heart of God. And so uh, last Sunday was really the exposition and explanation of Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The rest of the month will be application of that and implications uh, of that. And so I'd encourage you, if you missed it uh, last Sunday, to go and listen to it because that's foundational for where we're going. Uh, What it means to be the salt of the earth is that we preserve as Christians the world from moral decay. What it means to be the light of the world is that we shine into the darkness around us. And that's what we hope to do this morning, uh, confronting uh, the darkness in the world, specifically the darkness where uh, the image of God, the Imago Dei, uh, is being discarded or destroyed. Uh, this morning, we remember that we have the sober calling as Christians to defend life, uh, to speak for those who can't speak for themselves, um, to stand in for the vulnerable because every human from conception, from womb to tomb, every human uh, bears the image of God. So what that means, and, and maybe you already know this, but we're just going to be in difficult waters this morning. Um, it's heavy. It's a heavy thing to talk about. Uh, now, why we talk about it is we believe that the mission of God is, is too important and the injustice in the world is too great for us to be silent about things like this. But even with that, that just want to acknowledge to you, it's a, it'll be a heavy morning. There's a heavy heaviness for us this morning. Difficult things to talk about. Um, if at any point, though, that you feel maybe overwhelmed uh, or just overwhelmed with sorrow, maybe you feel overwhelmed with shame, God does not leave us without hope. And so I will not leave us without hope this morning. I want to say a prayer for us, ask God to lead us by his spirit, and then we'll begin. Uh, God, what you reveal about yourself, Jesus, how you describe your very heart is that you are gentle and lowly. Uh, God, there is great sorrow around us. There's great evil that still marks this world. You've called and commissioned us to be courageous Christians, to speak boldly into injustice, but not just to speak boldly, but to speak thoughtfully, holistically. So would you help us this morning? We love you. Amen. Uh, Let's start with history. For the first 500 years of the Roman Empire, for the first 500 years, the most vulnerable people in the empire were newborns, uh, infants. 
uh, of all the wars fought in Rome, uh, of all the people who were oppressed, there was no people group as oppressed, as threatened as infants were. And that's because there was a really common practice in the Roman Empire that historians call child exposure. That's the name of the practice. How it worked was if you uh, gave birth to a child that you did not want, then you could, um, there were designated spaces in Roman cities, whether in the city or outside the city, there were designated spaces where you could just go and leave the child and walk away. Uh, and many people did just that. Um, they didn't want their child for a number of reasons. The, the, the five most common reasons someone uh, left their child somewhere in the city was one, financial, they couldn't afford it. Uh, two, religious, some believed that children were born cursed by the gods and they didn't want that curse. The third was illegitimacy, if there was alleged adultery or adultery and the child was considered illegitimate. The fourth is gender. Uh, many people, many people in the Roman Empire wanted sons, not daughters. And so if they had a daughter, they would discard their daughter through, human expo or through child exposure. Five is physical blemishes. Something's wrong physically with the child or deformity or disability or something like that. In fact, there is a, a famous physician from Ephesus who wrote all these medical journals that are still around today. His name was Serenus, and uh, his most famous medical journal was uh, a journal that he wrote on how to know if your infant is worth keeping. And so here's how you could inspect your child physically and uh, to, to know if that child was going to grow up to be strong or to grow up to be weak. And a lot of people, based on the criteria he provided, would discard their children. And if a parent decided to discard their child for any of those reasons, what they would do is they would take their child to one of these designated spaces and leave them. It's child exposure. What it meant was um, they would leave them just in, in, for some, it'd be in the city center, right in the middle of the market. Others, it was outside of the city. If you lived in Ephesus, uh, we're familiar with Ephesus because of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The way this was practiced in Ephesus is you could take the child that you didn't want to the Agora, which is where the city assembly met, uh, or you could take the child right outside the city gates where trash was taken and leave the child there. Uh, and, and once an infant was left in one of these child exposure spaces, they became a res vacantes, which in Latin means an unwanted thing. Once it left the arms of the parents, it was no longer a child. It became an unwanted thing. The two most common futures for the child, what happened most often is either death through exposure, which is where the name comes from, starvation, something like that, or slavery. Someone could come along and decide that maybe the unwanted thing had no value as a child, but it did have use as a slave. It had use as property. And that was Rome. For 500 years, that was Rome. If you lived in a Roman city, that's the kind of city that you lived in. And this was all not just socially accepted, it was socially expected. Like some opposed, to be fair, but most did not. There was not a significant moral voice crying out against it. Like the discomfort that you feel, and I can just see the squirm even, the discomfort that you feel right now, like that, uh, man, why are we talking about this kind of question? That feeling that you have of, oh, that's terrible, that's heartbreaking. Let's get to the good news, like the, the squirm of the soul that I hope you have in hearing that, 
That didn't exist then. It didn't exist. It didn't exist in the collective conscience of the people in the empire and in these cities. It was not unusual to walk the streets and just see discarded newborns. And then, in the middle of the first century, something began to happen. In the middle of the first century, babies began to be picked up from these human exposure places. They began to be picked up from the city centers in the trash piles, not left for dead, not taken as slaves, but there was another future introduced into the lives of some of these children. Many were adopted. What began to happen in cities like Ephesus, babies who were left on the steps of the Agora or babies who were left outside the city gates, they were rescued, they were picked up, not as slaves, but picked up as children, adopted into families. What happened? What was the change? What happened in the middle of the first century? What would lead people to begin going against the current of culture to take in children that were not their own? The gospel of Jesus happened. That's what happened, that, 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 that Christianity came to these cities and with it the truth that life is precious, man. That anyone who bears God's image is not an unwanted thing, but is a sacred human. And the truth sent Christians to the streets and outside the city searching for what is sacred. The next three centuries are filled, and you can read it. The next three centuries are filled with examples of Christians speaking out against child exposure uh, who took children into their own homes. I read about one woman who lived almost all of her life as a pagan. She worked in a temple for a pagan god. She became a Christian and she started an orphanage for babies who were left in the streets. Others started what would be recognized today as adoption agencies. I I was just enthralled by this. Some scholars believe this was such a part of Christian life in Ephesus that when uh, Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, that's why he begins talking about adoption. In chapter one, verse five, it says, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The practice of Christians adopting discarded babies was so common in Ephesus that Paul uses it as an illustration to describe what God had done for them. Just if we could just use our imagination and think about what that must have been like with me, maybe try and just see the scene with me. Like some young woman who lives in, in Ephesus a couple thousand years ago, she had given her life to Jesus just a few months ago and she had been going to church with one of her friends who meets in a house down the street and she knows that she's living in a city where babies are left for dead and she's learning that God made everyone and everything with dignity and with value and with honor and so one day with courage and mercy in her heart, she gets up and she says, today's the day and she walks outside of the city and bravely walks into the trash heap and she hears the cry of a discarded newborn and she reaches her hands out and she wraps her arms around some confused, terrified child and she whispers to him, I want you. You are mine now. And I will care for you because God has cared for me. And maybe she walks back into the city and someone shouts at her and says, hey, what's your plan with that thing? Will it be your slave? And she says, no, 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 this isn't an unwanted thing. It's a sacred human. He won't be my slave. He's my son. How beautiful is that, friends? 
I mean, how wonderful that happened all over the empire. Christians armed with the truth that every human life is sacred. It sent them into the streets. And that is what it means to be the salt of the earth. It's what it means to be the light of the world, to preserve the world from moral decay, to shine bright where it's dark. And that happened in the first century, second century, third century, because wherever Christianity exists, there exists with it two truths about every single human. Wherever Christianity has settled and has taken root in authenticity, exists with it these two truths, foundational truths about every human. One is original sin, that every single human is sinful. As Romans 3 says, there's none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The heart of all that's wrong, the very heart of the problem of what's wrong with us is that in our very hearts there is a problem and that problem is sin. And we're all born into it. It's not something uh, that, we, that we adopt. It's something that we're born into. It's part of every single one of our lives. It's part of the human condition. If you've ever been around little children, you know this to be true, right? Like, I have a two-year-old and every morning the kids eat breakfast first. I like to eat a little later in the day and so... uh, they'll eat their breakfast and then I'll make my breakfast and every morning my two-year-old will crawl up on the counter as soon as I have made my food and she will point at my food and she'll say, that's mine. (laughs) And I'll argue with her. I'm like, no, 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 nothing about this is yours, right? Like I'm, not only did I make it, but I bought it and she'll just shake her head and she's like, "This this is cute. We both know how this ends. It ends with me eating your food, right? In fact, one day uh, I wasn't sharing any food with her and she reached over and she grabbed my fork and slowly pointed it at me. Like, dad, we both know I will stab you for food. Is exactly what she meant. We didn't teach her that, right? I don't teach my kids to stab or threaten to stab. Now, I'm not home all the time. I'm pretty sure Carrie doesn't teach him to stab. I'm very sure that Carrie doesn't teach him that. And we didn't have to, right? There's something in them just natural to all of us that they're, they're born into a level of selfishness. I have a friend, I won't tell you who, uh, he has a four-year-old daughter who is precious. She got in trouble once and he was talking to her, correcting her. And as he's correcting her, she got really mad at him and she looked him in the face and said, you are a weak little man. Oh. <laughs> uh, And he was so defeated that he just told her she's probably right and left the room, right? (laughs) We didn't teach our daughters these things, right? Uh, We didn't teach them to believe that everything is theirs. Didn't teach their daughter to use words to hurt people, but you don't have to, right? It's something in us that we all share is this bent towards selfishness, this bent towards wanting things to go our way. And, and, and you know this, it's cute and funny as it comes out of the life of a child, but that becomes destructive as they grow older. It becomes difficult, it becomes painful, it becomes hurtful, right? And where that comes from, the psalmist says that we're born into it, that we're born into that kind of nature, that we're all sinful. But then right next to that truth, what we believe about every single human, right next to original sin is image of God. 
that every single human was, was made in the image of God, bears God's image. In Genesis 1, it says, let us make man in our image. Psalm 8 reflects on that and says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor. And so every single human has dignity and worth simply because they're a human. And so if you put those two together, what we believe as Christians is that every single human is both sinful and sacred. Both sinful and sacred. And something in everyone, something broken that needs to be fixed also. And equally, something sacred that needs to be protected, defended. And if you lose one of them, you get something different than Christianity. Like if, if there's no sin, which is really popular right now to believe humans have not sinned against the holy God, we simply have character defects that are mostly uh, caused by circumstances in our life, right? Where humans are only sacred and not sinful, that will amount to some form of humanism. Where the only gospel that we offer is a gospel that helps social problems but offers no help to the soul's plight, which won't do. Right, Because all of the problems in the world grow out of the soul's plight. The heart of the problem is that in our very heart there is a problem. Only Jesus and his cross can heal. But where humans are only sinful and not sacred, where they are sacred and not sinful, it amounts to some form of humanism. But where they are only sinful and not sacred, it amounts to oppression. Some sort of diminishment of God's image. And we as Christians are not those who simply offer the answer to the problem of sin. We also offer action where what is sacred is desecrated. Amen? This is God's very heart. When God describes himself in the word, he makes sure to describe himself as someone who cares about his image. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68, five, father to the fatherless, protector of widows is God and his holy dwelling. When God is introducing himself to the world through his word, he says, I am one who cares about my image, especially I care about the vulnerable because they have my image. Anyone whose heart belongs to God will have God's heart for the vulnerable. Wherever the gospel of Jesus is present and those two truths about humanity are present, it will send his people into the streets. And that's what happened in Rome. It's what happened in Ephesus. It's why the Christians in Roman cities search the streets, believe it's our job to save the sacred. What about us? To be salt and light in the world is joining in that work of protecting the sacred. And we are in our own moment in history. We live in our own culture where there is uh, those who bear the image of God who are threatened. And so one of the questions that to be a faithful church in this moment, one of the questions we have to ask is where is what is sacred being discarded? Where are we to search the streets looking for unwanted things that are treasured in God's heart that we can pick up. I want to turn our attention and our action to two answers to that question. One is slavery. Uh, there are over 40 million people right now who are captive to some form of slavery, whether that is labor, whether that is sexual slavery. It takes on all kinds of horrendous forms most of it to try to explain in a room that has children in it, I would have to edit so much that it wouldn't mean anything because it's that awful. Over 40 million people who bear the image of God and yet their time and their bodies are owned by someone else. They're not free. 
So like the slavers in Rome that looked at a newborn and said, you are not valuable as a person to be loved, but you might have some use as a slave to be owned and used. That's still happening. That's still, in fact, it's happening more now than at any point in human history. Uh, Human trafficking is a $150 billion industry every year. $150 billion annually. If you were here last year when we talked about this, I told you it was a $140 billion industry. They've grown more profitable. Pandemic didn't hurt business for the traffickers at all. And one in four victims of slavery is a child. One in four. If we are... If we are considering seriously where is the sacred discarded, where is God's image being oppressed, one of the clearest answers is they are owned, they are being enslaved, they are being used. It is one of the scandalous issues of injustice in our time, uh, and it is an egregious offense to God. It's an egregious offense to God. At the end of our service, I will tell you about and encourage you towards a partnership with a wonderful organization called IJM. Uh, We partner with them. They are liberating slaves all over the world. We'll get there for now. Just here, what is sacred is enslaved and we can't ignore it. Another answer to where we see what is sacred discarded is in abortion. Just in America, by the end of 2020, so just last December, 60,236,000 165 babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade in 1973. Every 30 seconds, a child is aborted. Our service will be about 75 minutes this morning. The service, not the sermon. Some of your eyes got real big. Our service will be 75 minutes this morning. In that time, 150 children will die. 150 image-bearing babies discarded as unwanted things. Now... This is a difficult conversation to have for a number of reasons. I'm committed to having it, it's important, but it does just even saying the word abortion out loud in front of you, knowing and not knowing who's watching online, it demands that we speak in two ways. It demands that I speak with both clarity and care because there is no, uh, there is no part of my heart or God's heart that want to lead anyone into condemnation or into shame this morning. Remember, he has hope for us because he's gentle. But I do need to speak with clarity and care, which, which will take some time. For instance, I know that right now I am assuming something that not everyone agrees with. Many in our society and around the world don't believe abortion is wrong. Many believe the opposite. They believe that opposing abortion is wrong. They believe opposing it is actually the issue of injustice. It's incredibly controversial, and, and while I know, I know where I'm at, I know there's a good chance that most listening right now agree that it's wrong. I don't want to assume everyone does. And, and so in that, I don't think this is the space, if that's you, if you don't agree, I don't think this is the space to try to convince you otherwise, to be honest. I don't think I have the ability to do that, mostly. I'm not assuming that you just haven't thought hard enough about it, and I can take five minutes to, to win you over. But I do, if that's you, I do wonder, listening, later listening at any point. I wonder if you might find certain things as confusing as I do about this issue. I don't think I can convince, but I wonder if at least we can share a bit of confusion together. Like, because of the advancements in science, we know more and more about prenatal development than we ever have. And we learn more and more. 
Uh, all of a child's genetic makeup is present the moment of conception. A heart is beating just a few weeks into pregnancy. The more we discover about what happens in the womb, the more we discover life in the womb. Life. And with those discoveries, you actually see a lot of contradiction playing out in a culture that is so favorable towards abortion. Like, it's somewhat subjective when we pay attention that we see life and when we don't, when we act like there's life and when we don't. For instance, no one argues that point when a family is celebrating, right? Um, Like, when someone announces they're pregnant or at a gender reveal, I've never heard the response, like, what are you so excited about? It's not a life yet. Never heard that. Or to put it in more sad terms, and I say this delicately, when a pregnancy ends in miscarriage, like so many in our family of faith know, know that pain, and I'm so sorry you know that pain. When that kind of tragedy happens, I don't know of any voices that say, don't grieve, don't be so sad. No, in fact, hospitals, even hospitals in this area, they'll offer resources to help people when that happens. To help them what? To help them grieve loss of life. Isn't it at least confusing that we live in a world that culturally mourns miscarriages but celebrates abortions? It's confusing. It seems like you have to choose one or the other. Like a woman I read about who had two miscarriages and one abortion, she later decided the abortion was wrong. She had a change of heart, and she said that she needed to grieve that. And she said, I was shocked that my friends grieved my miscarriages with me, but when I decided I needed to grieve my abortion, I had to do it alone. I'm confused. I'm just confused. I think it's confusing that culturally we celebrate life and grieve death in the womb, but don't protect life and stop death in the womb. I'm confused at how a culture will protect and celebrate people with disabilities unless they're in the womb. Like, share a story online about a child with a disability being bullied and just watch the outrage. Like, some child with Down syndrome being mistreated. And we rush to condemn that, and rightly so, because you can't pick on kids because they're disabled. You can't. We won't allow it. But the overwhelming majority of pregnancies where there's a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome, the majority are terminated, overwhelming majority, because of the disability. But I thought you can't pick on kids because they're disabled. I'm confused. I'm confused at how very little is mentioned about the number of female voices that are silenced through abortion. Like many abortions are discriminatory toward girls. Pregnancies ended because of gender. Worldwide, there are a lot of people who want sons, not daughters. And those are little sacred female babies with full female genetic makeup with the potential to become strong, flourishing women in the world. And I know the argument from those who support abortion is around women's rights. And I know there is work needed both in the culture and in the church around gender equality. But surely that work won't move forward through destroying women in the name of women. It's confusing. And what that is, friend, as I would love to invite you into that confusion, what that is, is that's the confusion that comes from trying to ignore what God has revealed. That's the confusion that comes from trying to ignore what God has revealed, that life is sacred. And because life is sacred, we can't help but stumble into contradictions when we try to create a culture that believes some of life can so easily be discarded, at least 
be a little confused. Now, here's what I know to be true. I know that most are probably in agreement. You're not in confusion, you're in agreement. You don't need to be convinced, you're already there. And here's the more important thing, that's not the end, that's just the beginning. Uh, When it comes to uh, who we are, when it comes to shining light into dark spaces, when it comes to being the salt of the earth, uh, we are not here to agree, we're here to act. We're here to be mobilized together, to be salt in light. Uh, it's not just saying, man, that's really sad. It's worse than I thought. It's about imitating the long Christian heritage that responds by going into the streets, by leaving the city. So Christian who, who believes abortion is wrong, we need to be clear about two things that this is not. It is not just a position. It's especially not simply a political position. I pray that no one hears any of this as a political talking point. And would you please just do me the charity of not assuming that I'm trying to lead you into a certain party or political path. That's not what this is. This is not a Christian. This is not an issue that we view through political lenses. I know what's going on in our country right now. I know the issue of abortion was an incredibly significant one in this political season. And what I think is, I think there are some politicians who deeply care. I think others simply use it as a pawn to strengthen their voter base. And that might be really cynical of me, but listen, pro-life will come out of your life as treating all people as sacred, not just those who vote for you, not just those who are in the womb, but all people who are sacred. And I know that this is complicated and this is really confusing. I think the potential around this issue for misunderstanding is so great that the thought I had this week was, man, is this the right time to talk about this? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, mostly because since I shared the 30-second statistic with you, another 12 babies have died since I shared that. It's also yes, because this is not first for us a political issue, and we are not a political party. We are the people of God who believe that all people matter to God. That's who we are. We do not view this through categories of left and right. We view this through categories of kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light, which means there's something to be confronted about that, friend, which means we are consistently about life. This goes back to what we said last week about being salt of the earth. To be good for the world, we have to be different from the world. And so what that means is this is not simply a cultural issue that I have a stance on. This flows out of who I am. This flows out of my very character because as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I treat everyone as sacred. Everyone. Like everyone has dignity. Yes, and especially someone as vulnerable as a child in the womb. But it doesn't stop there. Man, I want to search the street for where God's image has been discarded. And that starts by me searching my heart for where I have treated people in ways that are dehumanizing. Where I have prejudice or slander or partiality. It just won't do. (laughs) It will not do to be the people who are pro-life in principle, but pick and choose who we treat with dignity in practice, in everyday life. That will not do. That is not, this is not a position. It's a way of life, a way of treating all people. And we will know that we care when it comes out of our life as action. It's why I'm so proud of and grateful for all the families in our church who have adopted or been part of adoptions. Uh, Yes, amen. Just the ones I personally know, personally know, there are over 30 adopted children in our church. 
These are men and women who care deeply about God's image, who model God's heart for the vulnerable. They are the modern day Ephesian Christians who have taken into their home children who God treasures. And if that's you, well done, friend. Well done. You've been faithful. Be encouraged. So this is not just a position for us. Also, Christian, as we think about abortion, to think about it holistically, for us, it is not just about a baby. It's also about a mom. It's also about a family. There's a story in the Bible, I think, of often around this. We talked about it a few years ago, but it's the story of Hagar from Genesis 20, 21. She was a servant of Abraham who was, here's her story. Here's how she got where she got. She was pressured by Abraham and his wife to have a baby with Abraham and then was abandoned and kicked out of the house by Abraham and his wife because she had a baby with Abraham. Manipulated, uh, abused. And so what happened was is they kicked her out of the home and she was sent into the wilderness with enough food and water for a few days. And they, they ran out of food and water. They're both stuck in the wilderness. They both will die in just a few days. And so what she does is she sets her child under a bush and she walks far enough away so she can't hear his cries. She's been abandoned. She has no food or water. She's impoverished. She's facing life as a single mom. She's scared. She's heartbroken. And she came to a point where she could no longer take care of herself or her child. And that, friends, is really close to the reality of so many moms who are pregnant. And consider this. That is so close. Someone has abandoned them, manipulated them, used them, and they don't know where they're gonna, how they're going to take care of their life. They don't know how they're going to take care of the life of another. They are scared and they are confused. Listen to what happens for Hagar in Genesis 21, verse 17. God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand. I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. How does our God, who is the defender of the vulnerable, the one who has a heart for widows and orphans, how does he respond to this scared, abandoned, impoverished mom? He hears and he provides. He makes a well for her is what he does. He hears the cries and then he speaks life, not just life, but he says, there's a future. I have a dream and a future for you and for your child. And then he provides because he cares. Oh, church, there are families around us Moms who are alone and feel hopeless and scared and what they need is not a lecture. What they need is not the arguments that I've laid out or the statistics that I've shared. What they need is a well. What they need is they need someone who will hear like God hears and see like God sees and who can dream about a future for them and their child like God can and who will ultimately fill their empty cup with water. And it's why every organization that we've invited here today to partner with that I want to tell you about, they have a holistic, thoughtful, dignifying care to moms because those moms have dignity and many are in a broken situation simply needing someone to help come in and put pieces together that they can't put together on their own. Church, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. It is our moment in history to be the hands and feet in the street saving what is sacred May we be faithful. Look, no one can do everything 
everyone can do something. Everyone can do something. The most practical way to respond is by partnering with one of the organizations or all of the organizations that are here this morning. They are doing work and they're doing work well. I'll tell you about them at the very end of service. Right now, I wanna just spend some time praying together as a church and we'll end in prayer. But before that, I need to say something to someone. And I don't know who exactly but in a room this size, and I'm sorry it took me so long to say this, but in a room this size, the number listening online, some, if not many, have abortion as part of your story. Years ago, I talked about this, and there was a woman in the audience who had had an abortion, and as I was speaking, she was so overwhelmed with shame that she put her hands over her ears because she just couldn't listen anymore. And maybe some of you felt that. Even now, maybe some of you feel that, and I hope I have not in any way added to your burden. I hope you have not heard condemnation. God is gracious and there is hope. Hear me, if you have the space in your heart to not cover your ears towards me, I need to tell you something, if that's you. You are not an unwanted thing. You're not. Not only are you sacred, not only do you bear God's image and have dignity and worth and value no matter what you've done, not only that, there's grace for you in Jesus. I don't know the circumstances, and, and, and I'm sorry for the ways that I'm sure that you've been wronged, but I do know that there is love from Jesus that covers all, that he is gracious and kind to forgive, and if you have sought forgiveness, you already have it, and if you haven't, you have only to ask, because just like the Ephesian Christians who searched the streets for what's sacred, Jesus in his love searches the streets for sinners like me and like you. Can you imagine it with me? Can you just maybe try and see the scene that because of the wrong that you've done, you feel unwanted and you belong outside of the city with other unwanted things and the mounds of your failures are surrounding you and you feel trapped by them. But Jesus, who is gentle and full of love and full of courage, he leaves the city and comes searching for you leaves the city and comes to you and he wades through your guilt and your shame and he wraps his arms around you like a mother would a child and he picks you up, scared and confused and he whispers, I want you. I love you. You are mine now and maybe someone were to shout at him, Jesus, what is your plan with that thing? Will you punish them? Will you shame them? Will you abandon them? And he says, no, I won't punish them. I will forgive them. I won't shame them. I will clothe them. I won't abandon them. I'll never leave or forsake them. They are not a thing that is unwanted. They are one that I love and I will never let go. That's who he is, friend. Would you receive, remember that grace, that mercy, that kindness from our Savior this morning? It's yours. Father, we love you and we thank you and just declare standing on the truth of your word, oh God, there's not an unwanted thing in the room. There are none, God that you don't look down from heaven and see your image, value, dignity, worth. And so maybe what needs to happen right now is some need to spend some time crying out to you, Jesus, for 
forgiveness. Maybe some need to spend time considering Jesus that in your love, in your grace, you are searching right now to wrap your arms around, to recover, to rescue, to love, to bring into your irrevocable, unconditional favor and freedom and forgiveness. Would you do it now by your spirit? Would you lift condemnation and replace it with acceptance? Would you lift shame and replace it with your purity? That's who you are, oh God. That's who you are, Jesus. For others, God, would we pray now and spend time considering how you might use us to deploy us to shine brightly into the darkness around us. Christian, would you pray now? Citizens Church, would you take a moment to pray now and just ask God, how would you use me? My moment in history, how would you use me to send me into the streets? Maybe God's already using you and you just need to be reminded that it's worth it and it's not wasted. Would you take a moment just to pray? Lord, we love you. It is our great joy to be loved by you. It is equally our great joy to be used by you. Help us be faithful as we respond in singing this morning, O God. May we lift our voices. I pray, God, that in this moment, those who maybe just need to continue in prayer with you, would you meet them, Lord? We ask that by your spirit, you would do the the things that only you can do, God. May we respond faithfully. So we pray. Amen.